0: I would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 16th chapter of the Gospel according to John, John 16. I think this is the next to the last message in the Pharaoh Discourse. Uh, there are clear signs, even in what we're look at this morning, that Jesus intends to bring this Pharaoh Discourse uh, to an end. Um, and I want to read uh, this next of the final section in verse 16 to verse 24. Our Lord says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And yet, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus, in this farewell discourse, as we've enunciated many times, he sought to give hope to this group of men who were distressed and dispirited, who were troubled in their hearts. And he does this in chapter 14 by giving a series of promises. He follows the promises that he hoped would cheer their hearts in their despondency by giving them something to do, a charge, In chapter 15, to abide in him, to abide in his love. And then he has warned them of things to come. The hatred of the world, excommunication, casting you out of the synagogue, being imprisoned and even put to death by people who think in so doing they are serving God. He has told them that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, would be their great enabler. To help them to cope with all these things that would come, with persecution, and even that the Spirit being given would turn the tables on the world, because the Spirit is given in fact to prosecute those who would prosecute them. The Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. He has told them he has many further things to say to them, but they cannot bear it now. But the Holy Spirit would come, be their great teacher, and To take the things that belong to him and reveal it to them. Now at this point in this discourse, which I tried to give a summary of in what I've said thus far, Jesus goes back to the beginning. Now it's often a signal in biblical literature that authors will tend to wrap things up with thoughts that are very similar to the things that they began with. I think of the book of Romans, for instance, we had read the book of Romans, You noted that the obedience of faith is mentioned in chapter 1. And the obedience of faith is mentioned in chapter 16. It's almost like they have their bookends within which Paul speaks about faith and disobedience. He speaks about the gospel that calls us to the obedience of faith. And uh, that's what the letter is about. It gives something of a a sense that... uh, This is where he begins. This is where he ends. See everything in the the middle, in the light of where I began and where I ended. And you see that in many places in the scriptures that things get um, repeated. Jesus repeats the matters he began with. I believe is a sign he's going to wrap things up. And he wants us, he wants his hearers, he wants these disciples uh, to understand that Uh, As he began this discourse with them, uh, he's ending it because he wants to highlight the fact he's really concerned about their confusion. He's really concerned about their distress. Our Lord has been saying things that in their ears are strange things. They don't get it. He said he's going away. And where he's going, they cannot come. Though he's given them the reasons why he's going, that's to their advantage that he's going away if I do not go away, the spirit will not come though he's offered promises of hope, he's given them directives to follow, he's given them warnings of what's to come the point is, they still are confused they still are sorrowful he said in verse 6 of chapter 16 because I've said these things to you sorrow has filled your heart and confusion continues to fill their hearts as well from verse 16 to verse 24, we see their perplexity has not ended, even though Jesus has said all these things. You're not alone to think that you've heard a lot of sermons you didn't get a whole lot of benefit from. This is just the way it seems that many of us work and tick. And we need to do more to conserve God's Word. We need to do more than just hear God's Word on a Sunday morning, walk out the door, and forget everything we've heard. Again, that's what the Book of James talks about when it says, hey, "We're not to be like those that look in the mirror, and then you know you see that uh, you got egg on your face, and you decide, well, let me just go start my day and never think to take it off." You need to see yourself in the mirror of God's Word, and you're called to make the corrections that need to be made. And if Jesus' words were taken to heart, their sorrow would have ceased, their perplexity and confusion would have ended. But up to this point, it's not. Now, it would get ended when the Spirit came. It would get ended when Jesus rose from the dead. There was darkness now, but light would come. There was sorrow now, but joy would come. And in this paragraph, Jesus wants to address their confusion, their questions, their distress. And he does it by making certain contrasts The first one is between seeing no longer and then seeing. That's the first thing. There's the seeing no longer and then the seeing. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. There's seeing no longer and then seeing him. And then the second one is sorrow that will turn to joy. That's exactly expressed at the end of verse 20. Your sorrow will turn into joy. And then the final thing, and uh, I'm calling it seeking and finding, because I had seeing and I had sorrow. I want to get another S, so seeking and finding, even though actually the translation, at least in the ESV, is asking and receiving. But remember, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, ask and you will receive. Seek and you shall find. So seeking and finding is connected to asking and receiving. So I figured it was okay for the sake of the outline to say seeking and finding. So where we're going to go this morning is we're going to look at seeing and no longer seeing, sorrow turning into joy, and then seeking and finding. Let's begin with this matter of seeing him no longer, and then seeing him. Again in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Now if words like that were spoken to you, um, maybe you'd be confused a bit as well. And the response of the disciples is sheer befuddlement. What is this he says to us, they ask. What does he mean by a little while? What's a little while? Tonight, tomorrow, next week? He hasn't really defined it. And then, what's this matter of, you'll no longer see me? Again, they still back to not really understanding where he's going. and um, We don't know what he's talking about, is how they conclude. We do not know what he is talking about. Now, we know what Jesus is talking about. At least we should know what he's talking about, because we know the end of the story. We know what Jesus was talking about. Um, because we know what he did we know that he went to the cross he died and he rose from the dead and he was with them for a period of 40 days and then he appeared, he disappeared from their sight in a cloud and he was enthroned in majesty at this place that the scripture defines as the right hand of the majesty on high and so Jesus experiences exaltation at the father's right hand in the father's place of his dwelling Jesus also dwells That's not the thing of of their expectations. They were not expecting that was what was going to happen, that Jesus was going to go to a cross and die. They were not expecting a resurrection would take place. They were not expecting an ascension to take place. They were not expecting an exaltation to take place. And so, from their frame of reference, you'll see me no longer, and then you will see me, didn't really register. For in their minds, they were expecting this Jesus movement that they had become a part of was now going to take Jerusalem by storm. Jesus would triumph by military power or miracle power or some other power and they were prepared to fight in his name. We we're going to make Jerusalem great again. I guess was they were part of this movement. To make the nation once again what it was in the days of King David. And they were going to do it with the force of arms perhaps the force of argument perhaps whatever means Jesus was going to pull victory out of the jaws of defeat I got that from the Wad World of Sports from the old days going to pull a victory out of the jaws of defeat but Jesus to do this must be here he must be with us he must be present He must be visible. He must be an active player in all of these events they were expecting to come. What then is this matter of a little while and you'll see me no longer? What could that possibly mean? And a little while and you will see me? What does he intend to do? Pull a disappearing act and then appear again? Is this a magic show? No wonder they conclude, we don't know what he's talking about. They're stumped. about everything he said including because I'm going to the Father we know that he means a little while you will see me no longer because he's going to the cross he's going to die the death of crucifixion and they cannot share in the work that he will do he must do it alone where he's going they cannot come they cannot die with him on the cross. What a while they'll see him no more. No more will they behold his form. No longer will they see his smile. No longer will they hear his voice. No longer will they receive comfort and strength from his presence. They will be downcast and distressed. Remember the two who are walking on the road to Emmaus? Cleopas and either... Mrs. Cleopas or friend of Cleopas. Well, we don't know. Could have been the Mrs. Could have been just a friend. These two people were filled with the deep disappointment. They said we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But now he's dead. And our hopes are dashed. Not until those two on the road to Emmaus understood that the one who was with them was the resurrected Lord. Only when their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus alive from the dead did they receive comfort and joy from his appearing. And so these disciples, their hopes would be dashed. Sorrow would fill their hearts. Despair and distress they would experience. But they would also experience the joy of his resurrection presence and power. And so the seeing and the not seeing are Jesus' way of speaking of his death and his resurrection. But now, what about the sorrow and joy? Well, that's again the result of his death and resurrection. But the fact is, their sorrow would turn to joy. Jesus said, truly, truly, you shall sorrow and lament, but the world will rejoice. I think part of the sorrow and lamentation that the people would experience would probably come in the fact that the world did rejoice. The world put to death the Lord Jesus and they were glad that they did it. The world would believe they're rid of this pesky miracle worker whose works bear witness of the things we're concerned to deny. We will not have this Jesus to be received we will not have him to reign over us. We will not be his disciples. We will not bow the knee of loving allegiance to him. They were out for his life. And they secured his death. And they were well satisfied with themselves. The disciples would weep and mourn. And the world would rejoice. But then God would do something to completely upend All that equation. They'll completely turn it around. At the end of the day, the world would experience sorrow and disappointment because they come to know that they can't destroy the work of Jesus. I will build my church, he says, and the gaze of Hades will not prevail against it. They thought they had nipped this Jesus movement in the bud. And it would be no longer. And folks, throughout history, people have thought we've nipped this Jesus movement in the bud. We've destroyed it, we've corrupted it, we've made it ineffective, we've outlawed it, we've persecuted his followers. And all their efforts, even to this day, have proved in vain. The gospel still is in the world. The gospel still is going strong, powerfully, bringing disciples to bow the knee of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Sometimes we think, well, in America, we're in a post-Christian society. Well, travel the world. Travel the world. There's parts of the world that is far less a Christian society than we are and have been for for centuries. And there's parts of this world that there's the power of the gospel is changing lives. And revival has come. And God's doing a, a, a significant work and bringing people to the knowledge of himself and his salvation. I Many years ago we heard about a group of people in Kenya called the Rendili tribe. And they are basically pagans. They were basically people who didn't know much about the Christian gospel. And they had the outreach of Christian missionaries that came in their midst. And we got a letter that we began to pray about. That these people were asking for a missionary to settle in their midst. Now that tribe is... Brim with Christian professions and Christian ministers and they're now sending people out to other places to plant churches and 40, 50 years God's done significant work in spreading the gospel in the African continent in South America, in Asia and that work is continuing it's not diminishing in spite of all the efforts of people to bring it to an end communist China thought they were going to just outlaw Christianity and make the missionaries go home and that will be the end of it there's more Christians in China by by millions than were there when the missionaries left he will be raised from the dead raised to the heights of glory and he must reign till all of his enemies be made the footstool of his feet The disciples would weep. They would be sorrowful. However, they would not sorrow for long. A little while, Jesus says, and you will see me again, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. And Jesus illustrates this with the familiar metaphor of a woman in labor experiencing the pain of childbirth for a while. And some of us have witnessed our wives experiencing labor, experiencing the pain of childbirth. And we've been enlisted, at least in the little classes, as their coaches. And then you feel the your own flesh withering. You think, I'm going to be there to help. And your wife just wants you to go away. The pain is too horrid. She she doesn't want you around. Get lost. (laughs) And yet the child is born and the joy of the reality that you now have a a son. You now have a a daughter. You're holding a child in your arms. And all the pain of childbirth, those clearly significant and real, is yet diminished by the reality of the birth of a child. The Disciples would have sorrow, yes. It would be like birth pangs. But it's like birth pangs not just leading to the birth of a child, but leading to the birth of a new creation. Nothing less than that. Jesus will die and be raised from the dead to bring in a new age, new life, a new covenant, a new reality. in the light of which your hearts will rejoice. Another that personal joy, yes, the Lord we love, the world we, the Lord we, we walked with, the Lord whose voice we've heard will again be alive, but yet He'll be alive to reign and to rule and to bring in. A multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe to become his people. That joy that you will have in his resurrection presence and his resurrection power will be a joy that no one can take from you. The reality is the joy of the believer can never be diminished. Because nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the absence of Jesus will lead to the presence of Jesus corresponding to the sorrow of his absence and the joy of his presence. The absence and the sorrow are for a while. The presence and the joy is forever. But it's this new reality of his resurrection presence and his resurrection power ushering in a new age, a new creation, a new order of things. It leads to a new relationship with God in Christ in which what they formerly sought from Jesus would be sought, yes, still, but yet sought in a new way. Again, Jesus had been present with them. And so if they had ignorance, they would ask, Lord, what did you mean? Why did you say to the Pharisees? Jesus would be with them to answer their questions, to teach them, to encourage them. But now he's leaving, and he's going to be exalted in the Father's presence, and they would still be seeking him. But they will be seeking him in a new way. They would be finding him, but also finding him in a new way. In that day, the day of his resurrection presence, they would know his presence through his spirit that would be given them. And he would be exalted at the Father's right hand. And when that occurs, Jesus says, You will ask nothing of me. Right now you ask everything of me. Then you'll ask nothing of me. What, they don't pray? Yes, they pray. But they pray in a new way. Now when you have a question, now when you have a need, now when you have a fear, you're asking me directly. I'm with you. I've been with you, available to you, accessible to you, to hear your concerns, to answer your questions, to deal with your your concerns, and to meet your needs. Then I will not be with you in the same way I have been with you up till now. I'm leaving. You'll ask the Father, but you'll ask Him in a new way. You'll ask the Father in my name. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give you. Until now, up to this point, you've asked of me, but you've not asked of the Father in my name. This is a new way to pray. This is a new way to seek God. Prayer has been directed to the Father. I've taught you to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But now prayer will be directed to the Father in my name. And what you ask in my name, you will receive, that your joy may be full. What is this whole new element in prayer that Jesus is suggesting? I try to think through this. I, I, I thought of how does this differ? How does this contrast? with the way prayer was offered in the Old Covenant. What did the people of Israel under the Old Covenant do to be assured of prayers being answered? Well, they looked to the God who heard the prayers of the people, but the prayers were directed to the God of 1 Kings chapter 8. Turn if you will. The first Kings chapter 8. Here we have the dedication of the temple. The temple of Solomon. This great temple is built in Israel. And the people of Israel in the dedication of Solomon's temple are told to pray in a specific way. Solomon says... In verse 27, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Yahweh my God, listen to the cry, to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes "...may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place." Now what is this place? Well, this place was meant to take the place of the tabernacle in the wilderness. There was a tabernacle of the Divine Presence. It was God's house where God Himself will dwell. And God came in the glory cloud from Mount Sinai and dwelt in that tabernacle in the wilderness. And God's going to come and dwell in this structure, this house upon the earth that Solomon built. And Solomon realizes we're not of any belief that this house can contain the divine presence. The heavens of the heavens cannot contain you. Much less this house that I built. And yet this house is a house where God's name dwells and God's presence is to be found. God's special presence is there in the temple. And Solomon wants the God who dwells in the heavens of the heavens to cast his eye upon this house where his name dwells and then to look upon his people who pray to him. As they look upon the temple as well. Look at what it says. Well first of all he says. Listen to the plea of your people. uh, The plea of your servant in verse 30. And of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place. Their eyes are upon the temple. They're praying toward the temple. Now their hope is not in just the temple. Yes the God who dwells there. But that the God who dwells in heaven will also see. The prayers of His people directed towards the temple because that's where His name is. God's name is in that place. Listen in your heavenly dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. And the psalm gives a bunch of examples of a man sinned against his neighbor and he's made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house that here in heaven... And act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. He comes before your altar. He comes to this house. He comes to this place where your name is. You in heaven hear what he is praying and answer. So the direction of the eyes of the Israelites were towards the house of God. Towards the place where God dwelt upon the earth in the temple. And it's Jesus who comes from the glory he had with the Father from the foundation of the earth to take human flesh to do what? To tabernacle among us. To be the very tabernacling of God in human flesh. God's presence dwelt in Jesus. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it, speaking of the temple of his body. The fullness of the God had dwelt in him bodily. Divine presence was not to be any longer conceived of as in an architectural structure like a, ta- a temple. Uh, the woman of the well says, so should we worship in this mountain where our fathers worshipped or in Jerusalem where the Jews say God is to be worshipped and Jesus is "Neither place. The time is coming and now is when those who worship will worship the Father neither in your mountain or in Jerusalem but in spirit and in truth and Jesus is sending himself forth in terms of himself being the very source of the needs of the answer to the needs that people have as he's the living water that he set forth to the woman at the well Jesus is God's house God's temple God's presence God's name dwells in him as it formerly dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem. And now this one in whom the name of God is present. The divine name is in him. The divine presence dwells in him. Now he's entering into the presence of his Father in heaven. Glorify me with the glory I had with you from the foundation of the world. He's going to pray in chapter 17. And Jesus says, now the way that you pray is not by casting your eyes towards the temple structure, but casting your eyes to the risen Christ in heaven in whom the presence of God dwells and in whom the name of God dwells. And when you come and you offer your prayers before God, you come through Him. You come with faith in Him, with confidence in Him, with desires to... See, Him is the only name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. The only way to the presence of God. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So we come in His name. We come in the reality that God's name dwells in Him. God's presence dwells in Him. He's the way of our access to God. Because in fact, He is God Himself in the flesh. God in human flesh. And so now in Jesus' heavenly existence, Prayer is to be offered by us having respect to the fact that God's name is the the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We go to the place where his presence is manifested in the body of Jesus crucified, risen and exalted. And that's where we Draw near to a throne of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how Christian prayer is to be done. Christian prayer is to be done as we direct our eyes to the Father, coming in the name of the Son through his being the presence of God upon earth, now glorified in heaven, and coming in the power of the Spirit who reveals the things of Christ so that we see God in Christ as providing the full answers to the needs we possess. And so we ask, and He still continues to give. We seek that we would find Him. Again, He doesn't leave us orphans. He comes to us, and He comes to us, and invites us to draw near unto Him in our prayers. Just like Israel turned their eyes toward the temple, the place where the Lord looks, to where his name is, so in the new covenant, the eyes of both God and his people look to Jesus. That's where God's presence is. That's where God's name is. We come in the name of Jesus. And coming in the name of Jesus, we ask and we will receive that your joy may be full. Now again. Is coming in His name that ensures that our coming is not to ask for sinful things, unworthy things, self-centered things. I mean, imagine you come to say, "I, I come to a foreign country in the name of the President of the United States. Uh, To ask that war be declared on Cuba, uh, you know whatever you would. No, it's if you're an ambassador of, of of a king or a nation, and 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 you operate in his name or by his name, it's in faithfulness to the the designs and desires and the will of the king whose name we declare that we're speaking in. We come and we pray in the name of Christ. We come to be praying for what is authorized by Christ. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What we ask, we will receive. Not that our bank accounts will be filled, but that our joy may be full. Not that we would prosper in the things of this world, but that Christ's kingdom would prosper and advance in the world. As we conclude our thoughts this morning, in the light of what we've seen this morning, isn't it comforting to know that our Lord Jesus is concerned with the confusion and perplexity and the darkness and the sorrow that his people experience. And he wants them to be comforted in the reality that what we don't understand is but a temporary thing Paul says we see in part we know in part but that which is perfect has come that which is in part will be passed away will pass away and we can live in the suspense of not knowing everything because we're creatures We're, we're not God we don't need to know everything we're told the secret things belong to the Lord our God but those things that he's revealed to us belong to us and you know when we keep ourselves busy with what God's revealed We'd be just too busy to inquire about things we, that have not been revealed. But what we don't see and what we don't know of the reality of a present God, sometimes Christians experience that, and the, the, the prophets talk about that. Uh, many writers have talked about the dark night of the soul. They've talked about a sense of abandonment from God. Here's a passage that indicates that even the f- physical presence of Jesus is not of, of eternal duration. It's not. I will, you will see me again. I will come to you. I will give you of my spirit. And the sorrow and the weeping and the lamenting is but a momentary thing. And that will be replaced by joy that can't be taken from you. There's no such thing as God's people being consistently biblical if we're eternal pessimists. If we just go around hanging our heads saying everything is gloom and doom. No. Really nothing is gloom and doom. We should be the most hopeful, confident, joyful people upon this earth. Because even the troubles and the trials and the difficulties they're but for a season. Again the psalmist says weeping endures for the night. But joy comes in the morning. There will always be that morning light. There will always be that renewal of God's favor. There will always be that blessing from on high that no one can take from us because we have a God who has promised his presence. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. May God be pleased to give us joy, to make us a confident people to make us a people that are filled with hope and filled with optimism as we consider the words of our Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the way in which our Lord addressed his disciples in the midst of their confusion and darkness, the way he addressed them in the midst of their sorrow and gave them such grounds for optimism and hope even in the face of death there would be resurrection even in the face of what seemed to be abandonment there would be the appearance of your presence with them never ever again to be taken from them and we're thankful that we live as a people of the resurrection a people of hope a people of enduring joy Help us, Lord, to know these realities. Again, our own minds just tend to bring us down and bring us into an abyss of confusion and a morass of trouble. And yet, your word gives such light to bring our hearts hope and our spirits to be filled with expectation of grace and of good things to come. And so we ask that you'd hear our prayers, that our hearts would rejoice in the benefits and provisions that we have in the gospel, that we would live up to the full rights of the people of God, having such promises, having such realities that we possess in Jesus Christ our Lord. Hear our prayers as we would ask these things in his name. Amen.